Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster and it's certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Not enough letters of complaints sent about me last week, so boo and cheer as I climb the steps of news to the cathedral that is the Red Box Podcast. Thanks to Cal Walker and Patrick McGuire for holding the fort last week. Uh, luckily, all the big news is happening when I'm back. Normally it happens when I'm off. So, early Tuesday morning, we got the news that a vote of confidence was going to be held in Boris Johnson's leadership after that uh, threshold of 54 letters of no confidence was breached. So, coming up on today's podcast, we look back on previous attempts to remove Conservative Prime Ministers, Margaret Thatcher, David Cameron and Theresa May, hearing from some people who are in the room at the time. On the podcast, you'll also hear from Dominic Raab, the Deputy Prime Minister, on why he's standing by Boris Johnson. In fact, even now thinks that Boris Johnson's doing a better job than he'd have managed if he'd beaten him to the Tory leadership back in 2019. And we'll hear from John Penrose, the Conservative MP who quit as Boris Johnson's anti-corruption czar, claiming the Prime Minister had broken the ministerial code. So all that is coming up on the podcast in just a moment. First, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel, and today it's Rafe Sylvester and Carol Lewis. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yeah, on a Monday, we normally hear from Libby Rachel, but no Libby Purvis today, but we do have Rachel Sylvester. Morning, Rachel. Morning. And joining us is Carol Lewis. Morning, Carol. Good morning. So here we are, just after 10.30, several hours to go until the big vote actually happens. Rachel, how big a moment is this in the world of British politics and Boris Johnson? Well, it's a huge moment. A confidence vote in any prime minister is enormous. And this has been on the cards for a while now. And finally, the Tory MPs have tipped over that magic number of 54. uh, And the confidence um, vote has been... Announced. Now, we don't know, obviously, what that result will be. I had a text message from one of the rebels who's pretty well connected, who thinks that Boris Johnson would almost certainly win, but very badly is how this source put it to me this morning. So I think this is not just the beginning of the end. This is now the middle of the end for Boris Johnson. I don't see how he gets through to the general election, even if he wins this confidence vote tonight. Um, He is now toast, I would say. Wow. Uh, Carol, your, your take on it. Uh, well, I think whenever there's been a whiff of dissent in recent months, we've been told, wait until the Met investigation is in, wait until the Sue Gray report is in. Now they're both in and the, the message is that the lawmakers broke the law, but, but nothing much is going to change. And I'm not sure exactly what resolution I expected, but there's a general feeling uh, of disappointment. 
So I'm not surprised, really, uh, that this has happened. I think the booing out, outside St Paul's was a was a, a small moment of reckoning, was given we're talking presumably about a crowd of Conservative royal supporters, many of whom will remember the Queen sitting alone at Prince Philip's funeral. Um, but it's not about policy, it's about personality. Uh, this is Boris jo- about Boris Johnson, his style of leadership, rather than the Conservative parties per se. And as Rachel said, we're, we're midway through the parliamentary term, and I think MPs are wondering, will this man get me re-elected? They've gone back to the constituencies for half-term and jubilee parties, and they found out the answer is possibly not. And what um, do you make, then, of the uh, of the Labour side in all this, uh, Rachel? Wes Streeting um, was interesting on Times Radio this morning, but I always think he's, he's one of their more impressive operators, actually, I think, Wes Streeting. Yeah. Um, suggesting that uh, th- this might be a tipping point towards... Because one of the interesting things we've seen so far is that actually the collapse in Boris Johnson's personal ratings and the conservative rate hasn't, hasn't been, there hasn't been a, a corresponding surge in love and enthusiasm for the Labour Party. I mean, they are up a bit, but you might expect them to be much further ahead. Do you think that, that, that this Labour Party is able to capitalise on, on the Tory woes? Well, I thought Wes Streeting put it really well this morning, didn't he, where he said, the question is, will anger for the, against the Conservatives turn into an appetite for the Labour government? A Labour government is how he put it. Um, and I, there is just a sense now that, I don't know whether it's a tipping point, but Labour is starting to look more like a potential government in waiting in a way that it hasn't really for years. Um, it's partly with people like Wes Streeting, Rachel Reeves, Yvette Cooper. It looks more like David Lammy. There are some grown-ups around that shadow cabinet table. Um, and Keir Starmer just looks more sensible and more kind of pragmatic than Boris Johnson. Uh, and the, the Conservative government looks increasingly kind of shambolic and veering all over the place um, and lacking in any kind of coherent plan. So it's partly about the sort of leadership of Boris Johnson, but there's also a sense of kind of drift. And the, the Tories, whatever else people think of them, they 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 they've traditionally admired the sort of competence, um, particularly economic competence, and that now has all been thrown up in the air by um, both the sort of slightly shambolic handling of um, everything over Partygate, but also now the cost of living crisis that's coming down the track. So I think that's a really interesting question. And um, what the a lot of the MPs are beginning to think is Boris Johnson, the point of him was that he was a winner uh, and they could put up with all kinds of nonsense so long as they felt that he was a winner. And now it's starting to look like that's no longer the case. Um, and that may be proven in these by-elections that are coming up in a couple of weeks. What do you make yeah. of the Labour Labour position, Carol? Well, I think possibly in those red wall seats where they were really just giving Boris a chance, then I think they will almost definitely now be thinking, oh, we regret that, we'll go back to Labour. We might see that in Wakefield um, next week or so. But um, I'm not sure on the whether it's really a big shift. As you say, there's an interesting graph this morning, isn't there, that shows where, where all the possible um, next Prime Minister's stand in the ratings and and Starmer hasn't shot up as much as you'd expect in fact the surprise one is how high Sunak was at one point before he plummeted down with the uh, the wealth and the the out of touch um thing I, I wonder if he could could pull something back but Starmer really isn't that far off trust or hunt so it's not a clear lead for him um I think the important thing now is probably for the conservative dissenters to get word out of who they think might be an alternative. And uh, is there any route, do you think, Rachel? I mean, uh, uh, David Cameron famously called Boris Johnson the, the greased piglet that somehow he, uh, he, he wriggles through um, in the end. Is it, he is the great survivor. As someone who's... I mean, I've definitely done this lots of times. So I'm not sure if you have, but repeatedly written him off in print. Yeah. Only, only to find. There's no way he can come back from this. Oh, he's a busted fudge. Um, Boris Johnson does have a, an extraordinary political ability to yeah. to ride things out to 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 break all conventions to defy the predictions of the pundits and and so on is it possible Definitely. that he could and, do um, that this time well it is 
it's not impossible let's put it like that but and i think he does the thing is he just doesn't follow the normal rules so he would uh you know traditionally if um a leader does very badly in the confidence vote even if they win by a small margin they would see that as you know writings on the wall they'd you know realize that time is up but he's not going to do that i don't think that all the briefing are is is, is even if he wins by one vote he'll keep going he's determined to stick around he doesn't follow the normal rules but i think what's changed is that the um Tory MPs now have decided he's a loser, he's not a winner. So I think they will now not want to go into the next general election with him as their leader. So it's pretty hard. It's a mixture of party gate and the sort of sense that there's a lack of integrity in Downing Street, combined with a kind of policy vacuum. So, you know, it's a sort of nostalgia politics of imperial measures, grammar schools, um, with mixed with a whiff of sort of nastiness with the Rwanda policy. And it doesn't feel to a lot of MPs as if Boris Johnson really wants to do anything with power. It's all about his own ambition. Um, so I think it's the mixture of that kind of the sort of toxic party gate thing with the policy vacuum um, is really very dangerous for him. Uh, and I think it's hard to see how he survives until the next election, as I said. The thing but, is, that... but but we but as you say, he's he is the great survivor. <laughs> but I think now, I just think this is it now. He's it's um, he can't get out of this long, you know, before the election to the election. The thing is, Carol, going into the next election, by that point, we're assuming it's 2024, 2025, the Tories have been in government there for 14 or 15 years. The idea of, of winning at the, after such a long time in government, after so much has gone on, is already pretty tough. And so who, I mean, I suppose maybe the ambition, you know, you never write or underestimate the ambition of, uh, of uh, politicians, but it's, it's a tough gig for anyone to take on. And, you know, let's not forget, if Keir Starmer gets fined by Durham police, He'll have to resign. We could go into the next election with two new party leaders, as yet undiscovered. That sounds quite exciting, though, doesn't it? I think we need a change. (laughs) (laughs) I really do think we need a change, despite this morning them coming out and saying we're getting the big calls right. I think um, we're all a bit of a a loss to actually say what those big calls are that they're getting right. Uh, As Rachel said, they're looking chaotic. Uh, Just a couple of weeks ago, MPs were all whipped to vote against the windfall tax. And only a few days later, windfall tax was announced a great, you know, sort of a plum. It just just seems a bit all Boris-like. And I think probably they want to purge all all, all of all all of the his his influence. I mean, Partygate isn't just about lawbreakers breaking the law. It's all about how his style of leadership is influencing government, and we get this sort of feeling of chaos and what did he call it, flim flam. It's it's all a bit all over the place. So yes, I mean he might survive, and, and as Rachel says, he's a, he is the sort of guy who, if anyone could, he could. But in a way, I hope not. I I feel that people are ready for a change. Uh, well, yes, and uh, but then I suppose the thing is, if we could get a new prime minister, that might be a, the, the change. Boris Johnson presented himself, managed to present himself as the change candidate in twenty nineteen. Uh, let's let's part that there because we won't see what will happen uh, later on. There are other interesting things going on right now. Uh, more than three thousand workers are starting a four day week today. It's part of a trial. Uh, wait, so you don't lose any pay. You still get your full pay, but you do your work in four days rather than five. It's involving 70 companies, researchers from Oxford and Cambridge Universities, Boston College, and the Autonomy Think Tank are, are looking at to see if it improves productivity and well-being. So basically, if you get all your work done in four days, then you have a three-day weekend. I mean, we've just had a four-day weekend, which is, you know, probably too much for anyone. Um, what do you think of this, Carol? Is this a good idea? Oh, I think it's an excellent idea on paper. <laughs> I would love to work a four day week. My worry about it is they make very clear that you have to uh, be as productive, do as much work. So are you just going to end up working horrendously long hours and working much harder for those four days that you basically spend your extra day off sleeping? Or are you really going to be able to enjoy three days off fully? There is that. And I suppose that's the, the, the novelty factor might, uh, might wear off a little bit. What do you think, Rachel? 
I think it's a really good idea as well. And it's about that sort of sense that people are working more flexibly, isn't it? So you don't have to be in the office. That The kind of culture of presenteeism has been really demolished by the pandemic. And people have realised that you can work just as productively at home, regardless of what Jacob Rees Mogg might think. Um, and that you, you might be able to do your work in f four days just as efficiently as in five days. Um, I suppose the danger is, as Carol suggests, that you end up, you're supposedly doing four days. I mean, I think in theory, I work three days, but in reality, it's often seven. <laughs> you know, it sort of doesn't work like that, does it? Um, so the danger is that you 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 kind of um, work, the work and home life kind of merge into one another much more. But I think people should be put back in charge of um, the way and where and how they work. And I think you can be just as efficient working from home or working in four days as you can in five days in the office. I suppose the the, 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 the risk, uh, Carol, is that you actually, if, if the idea is you do all of the same work, but in four days, does that mean you just work four longer days? Um, and then if your day off is on a different day to the, somebody else's day off, do you end up working then because they'll phone you or drop you an email or, or, or whatever? It's, gonna, yes, it's a I big mean, cultural that, change, isn't it? It is. And that would be my worry that, that you'd end up answering emails and the odd call here and there having worked four very, very long days. It's also a question of how exactly it would work right now, because we have very high employment. We've actually got more vacancies than we've got people looking for work. So I'm not sure how it would work in, in terms of shifts and things. Um, so that would, my main worry would be four days sounds great on paper, but in reality, you'll be working more than four and you'll be working to all hours of the night. Rachel Sylvester and Carol Lewis there. And of course, you can read them and all the very latest news that you need. Uh, just go online to thetimes.co.uk. Uh, just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. You're listening to the Red Box podcast now. It's time for this. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. I would survive. I would survive. Um, um. Yeah, Boris Johnson is not the first leader of the Conservative Party or Conservative Prime Minister to face attempts to oust him. So let's start with Margaret Thatcher. It was back in 1990 that Michael Heseltine mounted a leadership challenge. Margaret Thatcher didn't get the numbers she needed to see him off in the first round. It had been triggered by the resignation of Geoffrey Howe as Deputy Prime Minister, which got Michael Heseltine thinking. I didn't think I would win. But I knew that the Conservatives had to change the leader and change the poll tax 
if they were to have a chance of winning any subsequent general election. So, I mean, you can never completely dissociate your own personal interests in these matters. But by and large, I was convinced we had to change the leader. I mean, what people were saying, some of these were her natural allies in the party. Look, have you got the balls for it? I mean, are you going to run away? Everybody knows that the situation is untenable. And you're seen and have been for years now as a, a figure who could potentially lead the party. I knew that was the end of my chances. Uh, I was quite clear about that, that uh, if I might well have beaten her on the second round, but once the, uh, the campaign was opened up, then I would be seen as the assassin, someone who was seen as so divisive a figure in the party. I think they were quite wrong. Of course, I would think that, but um, <laughs> uh, that was a very strong feeling at the time. Uh, that was Michael Hasseltine recalling what happened back in 1990. In that first round, the leadership challenge, he got 152 votes to Margaret Thatcher's 204. But it was enough to get the cabinet to withdraw their support and it cleared the way for the leader emerged, John Major, who, of course, went on to win the 1992 election. Well, let's continue our, uh, memory, uh, our trip down memory lane. John Whittingdale was political secretary for Margaret Thatcher. He explained what the pivotal moment was. I certainly don't think she thought that she was going to lose a vote of the parliamentary party. And Geoffrey Howe's resignation was the sort of pivotal moment, even though relations between her and Geoffrey Howe hadn't been great ever since she moved him from being foreign secretary to leader of the House of Commons. You know, when he came to resign and he made that very famous speech in the Chamber of the House of Commons about the broken cricket bat. Mr Speaker, I believe that both the Chancellor and the Governor are cricketing enthusiasts. So I hope there's no monopoly of cricketing metaphors. It's rather like sending your opening batsman to the crease, only for them to find, the moment the first balls are bowled, that their bats have been broken before the game by the team captain. And she sat on the front bench listening to him, and she knew from that moment that this was very serious. And the Geoffrey Howe speech was almost an invitation to Michael Heseltine to pose a challenge, which, of course, he did. I'm afraid that the campaign amongst MPs was very much a, a failure to grasp the depth of concern there was. Those who were saying to the team, oh, yes, of course, of course, we'll support Margaret Thatcher, they were sort of written down as, as supporters without any further checks. You know, we now know, and I mean, I've been involved in leadership campaigns uh, amongst the parliamentary party. And, and now, of course, you know, you don't just accept that. You, you check and check and check. You constantly collect information. And, you know, unless you've heard from five different sources that somebody is publicly committed, you don't assume they are. I mean, I think part of the problem was that she had very strong support particularly on the backbenches and in the junior ranks of the government. But among the cabinet, there were quite a lot of people who were never that strong sympathisers uh, with her. And therefore, you know, they essentially told her that they, most of them sort of said it with tone of deep regret and then said, you know, well, if you insist on standing again, well, you know, of course I will support. But they made it clear that they didn't think she should do so. That was John Whittingdale's political secretary for uh, Margaret Thatcher when she was Prime Minister. Well, in the room when she finally told her cabinet that she was quitting was the former pri private secretary at number 10, Caroline Slowcock, who remembers that moment well. You know, I, I was the only other woman in the cabinet room when this was happening and I went in expecting just to see a bit of drama, a bit of history. I'm a civil servant, you know, so the next Prime Minister, you know, will be coming in shortly. I wasn't expecting to get emotional. Uh, but then, you know, the sight of all those men who the night before had told her that they would support her, but they didn't think she could win. They were all round the table and there was just her and she had this short statement that she dictated earlier and she could not read it out. She kept on breaking down in tears. You know, her voice was 
is normally you know pretty sort of steady just could not be kept under control somebody offered to read it out for her but she said no and obviously she was just determined to finish you know she wasn't I've started I'm going to finish so she got to the end finally and then you know she said I don't think any of you will have heard that um, so I'll read it again and then she went through the whole extraordinarily painful process and I started and I wasn't the only one in the room I started crying it, it was the most painful uh, moment of my of my working life I, I don't think anyone wanted to be in that room at that point she collected herself and um, she went to go to see the Queen and when she came back the, the door of number 10 closed you know the sanctuary because there was you know outside there was media everywhere and she literally collapsed crying and you know we had to send her personal secretary her diary secretary Amanda who'd known her for years she sort of ran down the long corridor to the foyer just picked her up put her arms around her and took her up to the flat in a way, that's what number 10 is like. You're seeing scenes that nobody else sees. An hour or so later, she went out and she gave the performance of her life, really, in the House of Commons. So after 11 years in office for Margaret Thatcher, it was suddenly all over. We're leaving Downing Street for the last time after 11 and a half wonderful years. And we're very happy that we leave the United Kingdom in a very, very much better state than when we came here 11 and a half years ago. Margaret Thatcher was, of course, eventually replaced by John Major, who uh, went on to win the 1992 general election and three years later triggered his own put-up-or-shut-up contest. John Redwood put up and Major beat him. The electorate removed John Major from office in 1997. So now we fast forward to 2016. David Cameron had promised to stay on even if he lost the Brexit referendum. So man of his word, he resigned immediately. But the British people have made a very clear decision to take a different path. And as such, I think the country requires fresh leadership to take it in this direction. I love this country and I feel honoured to have served it. It's David Cameron uh, announcing that he was firing the starting gun on a leadership contest that was going to last for months. But then Andrea Leadsom gave an interview to Rachel Sylvester in The Times, boasting about being a mother. Leadsom quit the race, abruptly ending the Cameron era. Theresa May started packing to move into number 10. Baroness Burton, Gabby Burton, was a close aide in press secretary to David Cameron for a decade and was there on those final days. I mean, my, my last few days in, in number 10 were kind of slightly strange because, because obviously we, we thought we were going to have a bit longer. Yeah. Uh, so we, you know, we had the terrible shock and awfulness and ugh, uh, of everything that went on, as we know. And then we thought, well, actually, you know, you can sort of have a few more weeks just, you know, trying to leave in good order and all the rest of it. And then, of course, that was then sort of cut short, thanks to your colleague, Rachel. You know. um, <laughs> she only wrote down I've, what she said and put I'm it in the paper. No, I know, I do. About that. Um, and then suddenly, you know, it, was, it really was all over. So it was, it was two shocks, really. And so what was that like, the speech that he gave outside... Yeah. Number 10. And then he turns and yes. goes back in for the last time. Yeah, God, that was really... I remember I was there just as he went out. I sort of thought to myself, right, I was there right at the beginning. I'm going to get my elbows out and get there right at the end. So you were behind the door? Yeah. 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 I'm not sure I was entirely helpful, though, because I sort of said something to him and, and he said, please, you're going to make me cry. <laughs> so, Before he even went out? Yeah. That would have been terrible if you'd terrible. been responsible for that. Terrible. What a disservice. <laughs> <laughs> who needs, who needs advisors like me? What you said to him that it's... I just said, you know, you, you should be proud. You've you've done, you know, you, you've done a good job, um, and then yeah, and yeah. So there we go. So he goes, and then he comes back in again. And Ca- come, came back in again, and then there were tears then. Oh yeah, I mean there were quite, you know, we were well. Actually, in fairness, he was pretty. There would have been tears behind closed doors, of course, but he was pretty sort of gritted, gritted teeth that point because he, he at that those moments where everyone was sort of had potential just to kind of collapse in a heap he was he knew that we couldn't collapse in a heap of course you can't you've got to carry on and you've got to you know this was it felt so um cliff edge like for the country I mean what constitutionally what was going to happen you know it was it was really really it is really serious times so there was no you couldn't really indulge yourself too much on that front we governed far too much for the short term you know we got a this is our announcement and this is our policy and actually call it a different name fine but if something's working you carry it on and you know that and because you know short termism is the huge enemy to good governance and to good outcomes yeah yeah 
That was Gary Burton, former press secretary to David Cameron, uh, uh, and now uh, talking us through what happened in those those final days uh, with David Cameron. Uh, a bit of breaking news for it. Where's Michael Gove when you need him? Uh, Conservative MP John Penrose has resigned as the Prime Minister's anti-corruption champion, stating it's clear that the Prime Minister broke the ministerial code. So that in the last few minutes, uh, ahead of the vote of confidence uh, between 6 and 8pm today, Conservative MP John Penrose, former minister, Boris Johnson appointed the anti-corruption champion. He's resigned from that post, stating it's clear that Boris Johnson broke the ministerial code. Of course, Boris Johnson only became prime minister after the resignation of Theresa May. I will shortly leave the job that it has been the honour of my life to hold. The second female prime minister but certainly not the last. I do so with no ill will, but with enormous and enduring gratitude to have had the opportunity to serve the country I love. It's Theresa May resigning from outside number 10. Behind that famous black door, Paul Harrison was her press secretary in those final brutal days, months and years. Working in number 10 always feels like a privilege and there will be times when... Your boss, the Prime Minister, feels under particular pressure. At those moments, the privilege kind of gets supplemented somehow by kind of a sense of isolation sometimes uh, when you can tell that you're kind of the focus of the country's sort of political attention, but that things aren't necessarily going quite as you might want them to. That can be a a relatively sort of lonely feeling uh, and... You know, I think that has an effect on everybody inside. I think one of the big things that makes a difference to the way that staff feel through a crisis when they're trying to support the PM is kind of how united the building is. So, you know, during actually even some of the darkest days with Theresa May in office, it felt like there was quite a lot of unity and you know, quite a lot of togetherness as we tried to solve, you know, not always with a huge amount of success, as we tried to solve some of these problems. And I don't know whether that, is always replicated in uh, in every Downing Street that operation that's that's going through a crisis. I think, though, under Theresa, there was certainly a sense after the 2017 election where clearly things hadn't gone as we might have wanted, you know, there was a kind of an erosion maybe of power over time. And, you know, maybe that feels a little bit different to uh, today's number 10, where, you know, there have been a, a few shocks that have kind of been essentially delivered through the medium of of news stories all related to things that went on in terms of coronavirus and, and, you know, is related to lockdown. So in Theresa's day, it was more kind of a build-up of pressure, as I say, and there was a point in 2018, I think, where she faced a no-confidence vote and actually won that reasonably comfortably, but it wasn't so comfortable that it totally secured her position for the future. So it wasn't clear, really, in, in her case, I don't think, you know, right until the end, when the end was going to come. But it did feel like a certain amount of authority had had slipped over time. Paul Harrison there, uh, press secretary to Theresa May in her final days in number 10. Of course, it was in December 2018 that Theresa May won a vote of confidence, uh, but ended up resigning in that tearful statement on the steps of number 10, barely six months later. So Boris Johnson winning the vote tonight doesn't necessarily mean that he's safe forever. Up next, the case for and against Dominic Raab and John Penrose on whether or not Boris Johnson should be removed from number 10. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. Up next, the case for and against Dominic Raab and John Penrose on whether or not Boris Johnson should be removed from number 10. Uh, it was only five days ago you said that there wouldn't be a vote of confidence. Uh, what's changed? Well, I don't think it will succeed. I don't think it will pass. But we've obviously reached the threshold for having the vote. And uh, those numbers speak for themselves. But ultimately, I think it is an opportunity to put the weeks of speculation uh, behind us. And there'll be a very clear choice uh, for colleagues uh, this afternoon, later on uh, early evening. And that is, uh, do we continue supporting this prime minister? Do we draw a line under the sand of the issues around party gate? The prime minister has apologised. He's made the changes in number 10. Do we continue to build on the big decisions he's got right on the vaccine rollout, on getting the economy opened up, his leadership in the war in Ukraine? 
Do we press forward with our Queen's Speech agenda on everything from raising the level of skills, numeracy and literacy amongst the young people left behind through to the uh, technical qualifications we want to make more broadly available to young people, the crime-fighting agenda that I'm working on with Pretty Patel, or do we end up going into not, not just days but weeks and months of an internal navel-gazing political process where we're talking to each other as Conservative politicians, not talking to the public at large and focusing on delivering from them. And I think that will be a compelling and I believe and hope a persuasive uh, argument and set of choices for Conservative MPs today. You and your cabinet colleagues have been making exactly that case now for several weeks. It doesn't seem to have made any difference with your colleagues now. We know at least 54 of your colleagues want the promise to go. It could... It could be many more. What do you think happened last week? Something clearly happened last week. We we thought the Sue Gray report had uh, come and people had uh, said they were going to wait for it and it all went a bit quiet. And then during the course of last week, it seems that some of your colleagues went back to their constituencies, maybe over a cup of tea and a piece of cake during a Jubilee Street party, have had their ears bent by voters and they've made clear how angry they still are. I, it's the kind of thing that is put out there. I, I, I don't think that's right, of course. You didn't have anybody say to you over the weekend that they were still angry with the Prime Minister about Partygate? So uh, you'll always get feedback. But the truth is, the biggest point of feedback would have been after the local elections. Um, And the reality is it will be compounded different things for different people. But the reality is, in a way, it's academic now. But did you have people say to you at the weekend they were still angry about Partygate? Did people come up to you? No, no. Let me tell you, I went to... um, uh, events, Jubilee events in Isha, Walton, uh, Cobham, Oxshot, and I was out and about doing other things. And I've got to say, no one raised with me uh, the specific issue of Partygate. Nobody mentioned it to you. No, and, and by the way, plenty of people raised issues that they weren't happy with. That's bread and butter of being uh, an MP and being accessible to your constituents. But I think the, the, the truth is that that choice, uh, not just for me, but I think for all of my colleagues, wherever in the country they are, is going to be, do we draw a line in the sand and focus relentlessly with a laser-like precision over the next two years and the next election will be less than two years away on the economy and the cost of living? We've got a £15 billion package. We've got to keep working to deliver that that on uh, the NHS reforms and getting it uh, back, dealing with all of those non-COVID issues post the pandemic, on social care, on crime fighting? Or do we end up with this internal uh, conversation amongst ourselves? And as I said, that will go on for for, for months if we have it. So I think the uh, the right, the responsible thing to do, and I think the persuasive uh, choice is to is to focus on our constituents and, and back the Prime Minister and back the agenda, which is very full, and we've got to deliver on. Back in 2018, did you vote that you had confidence in Theresa May? Um, well, I resigned uh, as Brexit secretary uh, in uh, in the uh, because of the deal because I didn't believe um, that it was right for the country at such a a, a, a crossroads moment, um, and I made clear uh, that that I wouldn't be able to support. Uh, on that on that basis. So why was it okay to have an internal conversation and a leadership contest then, but it's not okay to have one now? Well, I think it all depends on the circumstances uh, of the case. And the reality was that Brexit was an irreversible decision and that deal and the backstop and all of those issues surrounding it would have been irreversible. And I think it was important to uh, to stop and say uh, uh, that, that that was the wrong course. Of course, we got Brexit delivered. Um, there are still, of course, always be ongoing issues with our European partners. But that's one of the things that we've done. We put that behind, behind us uh, largely. And I think actually with the the solidarity over Ukraine, we've shown how closely we can work with our European as well as our US and other allies. Uh, but we have this cost of living challenge. We're less than two years from the next election. We've got a packed agenda. And I think we've already had the distractions of party gate. And I understand why that was important to have the transparency, the investigation, the accountability. But I think we've got to get back to focusing on the job, the economy, the cost of living, uh, decent public services, the skills and reform agenda, fighting crime. Uh, and, and of course, those other issues around the world, including Ukraine. I think that's what yeah. our constituents overwhelmingly expect. You, you mentioned accountability. We did have the transparency. We had the uh, the, the full gruesome details, the vomit, the wine up the walls, uh, the, 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 the brawls and so on in, inside number 10. Where has the accountability been? Because lots of people looking at it would say, well, we know what went on. Who has been held accountable? Where is, the, where is that accountability? 
So first of all, you've got the criminal accountability through the fixed penalty notices. Second of all, you've got the um, the changes in personnel at number 10 and the structure. Uh, I think one of the points Sue Gray made, which is fair, is that it had grown in size and been harder to manage as a result of it. It, was, it it's become, over successive administrations, more like a, a, a mid-sized government department. So it will have its own permanent secretary. That will provide uh, an important, significant change in the civil service leadership in terms of personnel. Um, and, and, and I think that's right. Uh, but it's also right, I think, once uh, the Prime Minister has addressed those issues, apologised uh, for us to move on. Otherwise, we end up constantly talking about that. And I think it's very frustrating it's not for just people. That we're, it's not just that we're talking about it. It's because people are very cross about it. One thing that I'm, I'm interested in is, obviously, during the period uh, when the Prime Minister was in hospital, you were the acting Prime Minister. Uh, and there wasn't partying going on in, in Number 10, even though it was the same staff, it was the same size and so on. Why, why weren't there parties on your watch? Is it because Boris Johnson set the tone that breaking the rules was OK? No, I don't think that's right. Um, and uh, I, I think overwhelming throughout the both sets of peers you're describing, we were dealing with uh, a pandemic, uh, the worst in living memory, uh, with all of the economic as well as the health impacts. And overwhelmingly, uh, notwithstanding all the, the things that were done wrong, uh, the people in number 10 were focused in incredibly stressful, high-pressured um, circumstances and conditions on getting us through. And again, we come back to that point that I, that I mentioned. I think the Prime Minister got the big calls right on the vaccine rollout. That was something that was was in, uh, uh, progressing for months because you had to choose the uh, the trials that were backed, the investment that went into it, and then get it industrialised, then get it the logistics right. I think that was a massive call, saved uh, a lot of lives, but also helped us come out of the pandemic, open up the economy, Save uh, jobs, what it, the, the the forty million jobs furloughed, or uh, I think it was, um, and those livelihoods that went with it. Um, so I think the big calls we've got right continuously okay. throughout that. I'll but I don't. But that, I'm, I'm, no, I'm no, not. I take that we've we've done Ukraine and the the vaccine and got the big calls right. But the thing that interests me is that having said all of that and accepted all of that, you're behind in the polls. Uh, Boris Johnson was called a liar by mum's net. He was booed at St Paul's. He was mocked outside the Buckingham Palace over the weekend. Two thirds of the public think he should resign. Why are you right and the British public are wrong? I don't think that uh, taking those snapshot barometers in the way you've described are uh, right. People cheered as well as uh, a few uh, can you, heckled. Can you but... name another time when any British Prime Minister has been booed at a royal event? Uh, look, I can think of politicians in public being booed all the time. I can think of mum's neck giving politicians difficult time. But but the reality is midterm for fourth term government, of course, would expect uh, to go through uh, a challenging period, particularly after what the country's been through. And uh, uh, whether it's the, the, the pandemic, uh, the, the economic impact of that. And of course, we're going through a, a great set of challenges over the cost of living. Actually, I think if you look at the um, how far we are behind in the polls for a midterm government, um, the, the surprise is that Labour aren't doing better. But the, the reality is we stay focused on... Our so you, so you, think, you think that the government's doing so badly you'd expect the Labour Party to be doing better? No, I would think mid-term, okay. if uh, we were in as difficult position as you describe uh, in the superlatives that you used, actually they Labour... Superlatives, doing... They were just facts. You are but, behind in the polls. The Prime Minister was booed. You, but you asked whether... Called... You, sorry, sorry, to answer your question, before you get quite so overexcited, you asked whether there's ever been a worse situation, actually, um, if if you take a look at midterm polling, actually, uh, people would say, why isn't Keir Starmer doing better if he was on course to win the next election? He's not He's not convinced the country. And we're the ones, and this is a point I would make, yeah. with less than two years to go, with a packed agenda on the cost of living, on public services, on skills, on uh, the NHS, on social care, on crime fighting. We're the ones with the plan. I think what people need to see most of all, and that's what the, uh, the feedback I get from the public, but I think what MPs will focus on today is that choice. Do we focus relentlessly on the job at hand, or do we end up with a, an internal party political conversation, which I think would be regarded by, uh, as self-indulgent by many? Uh, just finally, you ran against Boris Johnson for the leadership in 2019 because you thought you'd do a better job than him. Do you still think that? Uh, no, I think he's got the big calls right, and I think uh, uh, I'm, uh, he has my full support, and I believe he'll win today, and I believe that if we can draw a line in the sand by doing so, we'll, we'll go on, we'll deliver for the public in the way I described, and we'll win the next election. Deputy Prime Minister and Justice Secretary Dominic Raab speaking to me, making the case for why Boris Johnson should remain in number 10. But the Prime Minister's position was looking slightly more precarious following the resignation of his own anti-corruption champion, John Penrose. 
and I caught up with a Conservative MP for Western Supermare. What's happened over the last few days that meant that you've made this decision when so many of your colleagues uh, came to this view some time ago? So... This is something quite new because it wasn't until middle or early last week, just before the start of Her Majesty's Platinum Jubilee, that the uh, government and the Prime Minister gave a public answer to the criticisms in the Sugre report about the ministerial code. Um, so we hadn't had that before. Um, and the problem with it is that the answer that came out in a public letter to the independent advisor on the ministerial code, um, uh, I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday last week, um, wasn't it didn't address the central issues. So the Sugre report says there's been a major failure of leadership. It goes right to the top, i.e. to the Prime Minister, amongst others. Um, and leadership is one of the basic principles, the seven principles of leadership and integrity in public life um, that run through the ministerial code. They are absolutely hardwired into it. It's sort of the, they go through it like a stick of rock. Um, and the Prime Minister himself in the ministerial code says this is how um, governments, all governments and this government as well need to do business. They're central to the way we have, to, to the way our democracy works. And so it wasn't until early last week that that reply came out. It wasn't then until we could see that the reply just really didn't address the central issues, didn't deal with the uh, with the, with the major criticism. Um, and as a result, I didn't obviously want to do anything over, over the Jubilee weekend. Um, but yesterday morning, I sat down and, and wrote this letter to say, look, I'm afraid this means this is a major material breach of the ministerial code. Um, and that means you know, historically it's always been that ministers who you know, commit major breaches of the ministerial code right up to the prime minister um, should resign. Um, and I think it's a resignation issue for me as the as the prime minister's anti-corruptions are. Um, but I'm afraid it probably is a resignation issue for the prime minister too. Which bits of the ministerial code in particular do you think that he broke? Did he lie? So the, the Sue Gray's report is quite clear. Um, she says there's a major... Um, failure of leadership in number 10 and in the cabinet office. And she says it's both political and official. So that means it's both um, the prime minister and various senior mandarins in in, in the Whitehall civil service as well. Um, and you know, there are seven principles, uh, you know, Nolan principles of public life. Those are the things upon which the entire ministerial code is built. Um, they're listed in the ministerial code. The prime minister says they're essential in the ministerial code, which is his document. And one of them, the seventh of them, is leadership. So actually what Sue Gray is saying really straightforwardly, but in slight Whitehall code, is <laughs> this, is a, this is a breach of the code and quite a big one. Uh, what have you, have you spoken to the Prime Minister since you sent him the letter? Uh, no, I haven't. I, I imagine he's got an awful lot to, to do, but uh, no, I haven't had a chance to. Have the whips been in touch? Uh, not so far, although to be fair, um, I've been um, dashing around uh, answering journalist phone calls. So they, <laughs> if they've tried, I haven't been able to answer their calls. Well, I'm glad I'm glad that you at Times Radio comes ahead of the whips office in the pecking <laughs> order. Um, I wonder how many of your colleagues do you think were in the same boat? They, they actually waited for Sue Gray. Lots of them said that, but we weren't sure if that was a a holding position or actually a, a genuine desire to, to, to wait for the full truth. How many of your colleagues do you think waited for Sue Gray, waited for the Jubilee uh, to get out of the way and, uh, and have reached the same conclusion as you? Um, I don't know is a simple answer, but my guess is um, potentially quite a lot because you're, you're right to say you know, a lot of Conservative MPs were saying wait for Sue Gray to come out because that's when we get all the facts. It's, it's not fair to prejudge something as important as this. Um, I was doing the same thing. And then what's happened since then is we've seen a steady trickle of people, you know, ones and twos each day. And I think I'm guessing that what's happening is this isn't organised. If it is, no one's been in touch with me about it. Um, I think what's happening is that people are saying, I've got to reply to my constituents. who I said I would reply to after Sue Gray came out. It's now come out. I owe them a reply. Um, and you know, they want to be able to look themselves in the mirror after they sent the reply and still feel like their integrity is intact. So I think that's what's happening, um, unless you can find someone who claims to be in organising it. But as I said, if they have been, they haven't been talking to me. Uh, you've been uh, the MP in Western Supermare since 2005. Uh, the, the Conservative Party has been through several stages since then, several uh, leaders. Um, I just wonder where, on, on the sort of the, the, the span of history, how serious do you think this moment is for Boris Johnson? Because even actually during the Theresa May days, and they were pretty grim uh, for uh, lots of MPs in Parliament, um, but that was an argument about policy. That was an argument about where you drew the line and single market and customs union, whatever it might be. It wasn't about the integrity of the Prime Minister himself. How serious do you think this moment is? The Conservative MPs are not deciding whether or not to remove the Prime Minister because they don't like a policy he's pursuing. They're deciding whether or not to remove the Prime Minister because they don't like or trust him. 
I, I think that's um, in, in the case of whether or not he's broken the ministerial code. That's that's clearly um, you know a part of that. You're absolutely right, and you're right to say that it is much less about the program, about the policies, about the manifesto commitments that we all stood on in the 2019 general election. In fact, I mean, I, my letter to the Prime Minister says he's done some really important things for this country. Um, and actually, I'd add now, I think that the levelling up agenda, um, you know, I know it's mocked by some, but I, I think it's really important. I think it really matters. Um, and I think it's really good. And you know, so do an awful lot of my constituents who tell me that they think it's it's right that you know places that got left behind, um, that there's a proper program of um, helping them catch up and creating the opportunities in the southwest or the northeast or wherever that already happen in, in, you know, in and around London and the home counties. So that idea of policy, I think, is still a unifying one. I still think it's popular. And I still think it is something which an awful lot of um, people would would you know back and get behind, and an awful lot of voters would get back and get behind. Um, but you're right. It, it's, I'm afraid it's much more about um, yeah, if if someone has broken the ministerial code, it is a resignation issue. It, it sounds like to me like you're you're now saying that the the policies are popular. It's Boris Johnson that's the problem. And actually, the opposite had been true for a long time. Uh, that he seems to sort of outperform uh, the Conservative Party. Um, it was suggested at the weekend that Boris Johnson is now the Conservatives' Corbyn, that he's such a drag on the party now that um, uh, popular policies get the thumbs down from voters because of his association with him. Do you recognise that? Um, well, I think it's unfair to, to call him the, the Conservative Party's Corbyn. He's, he's done some. He's got some really important practical achievements under his belt already. And you, we, we can talk about things like getting Brexit done and, and leading the international, being a leading figure in the international, national response to Russian invasion of Ukraine and all those things. Those are not small. Those are really important things which you can't imagine someone like Jeremy Corbyn ever doing or being being capable of. Um, But the point is they don't excuse or or, or justify a breach of the ministerial code, a breach of those ethical and integrity standards, I'm afraid, no matter how good they are. Uh, Just finally, uh, how long do you think Boris Johnson's got in number 10? Um, I... I'm very sad to say this, but I, I think that probably this is the beginning of the end. I, I've no idea what will happen this evening. We'll have to wait and see what the result is. But historically, what's happened is you know, once you've had a, a, a vote of confidence, uh, unless it's won by a crushing majority, and, and who knows what this evening will bring, um, but unless that happens, um, then the authority is so badly weakened um, that they end up going a few months later. And that was John Penrose speaking to me on my Times Radio show. For the very latest on all the developments on this breaking story, don't forget to listen to Times Radio, including for that result from the vote of confidence in uh, Boris Johnson's leadership. And throughout the week, of course, we'll have all the rolling news on the fallout, whatever the result is. Stay tuned to Times Radio. You can listen on DAB, on your smart speaker or on the Times Radio app. But for now, on the podcast, from me, Matt Cholly, it's goodbye. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.